Welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus. Glad to see you all here for the great privilege of meeting with our Lord. He welcomes us with these words of greeting. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Our call to worship comes from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, using, using a picture from the Old Testament tabernacle or the temple, uh, but applying it to our New Testament reality at God's right hand. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's pray together. O living triune God of grace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise and thank you for our Lord Jesus' saving accomplishment. We thank you for his atoning blood that opened a new and living way for us to come to you, for his ongoing mediation. We have him as our great high priest. How amazing your love, grace, and mercy is to want to forgive and accept sinners like us. How amazing your righteousness and justice is to refuse to forgive and accept sinners in any way that even hints at compromising your goodness. And yet how amazing your wisdom and brilliance is to design and execute a way to forgive and accept sinners in harmony with your perfect holiness. You are at the same time just and the justifier of anyone who comes to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we gather in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to draw near to you in faith. Please draw near to us in grace and please grant us your blessing through Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Let's approach our Lord in praise, singing, Exalt the Lord, hymn 12.
please be seated. The greatness of our Lord reminds us of our dependence upon him uh, for his acceptance and his forgiveness, which he freely gives in Jesus Christ. So let's join our hearts and our voices together and confess our sins using the prayer that's printed in the bulletin. Almighty God, long-suffering and of great goodness, we confess to you our neglect and forgetfulness of your commandments, our wrongdoing, thinking, and speaking, the hurts we have done to others, and the good we have left undone. O God, forgive us, for we have sinned against you, and grant us grace to walk in newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord reassures us of his free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins previously committed. This was also to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So far God's word. God designed a way that he could be just, that he could maintain his righteousness and perfect justice, not compromise at all, and at the same time justify, that is, forgive and declare righteous all who come to him through faith in Jesus. And that's by trading, that's by having us trade places with Jesus. So that when you put your trust in Jesus, God takes the perfect record of Jesus and counts it as yours. And he takes your fallen record and counts it as Jesus's. He punishes Jesus in your place. He rewards you in Jesus's place. So let's sing praise to God together, hymn 524. Oh, uh-huh. 
Please be seated. And now we join our prayers with those of him who intercedes for us, our Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty and sovereign God, we praise you that Jesus Christ humbled himself in order to exalt us. We praise you that though he was rich, he did for our sakes become poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Especially we praise you that Jesus, having been put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit, and that he has now gone to your right hand with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. We thank you for the witness of prophets and apostles through whom you have spoken to us. We thank you that as those who have not seen and yet believe, like Abraham and David, we are blessed. We praise you for your sovereign and good purpose, for your good governance of your creation, and for the assurance that you are at work in all things for our good and your glory. Grant us the faith, we pray, so to believe that we might boldly live, loving, believing, confessing, and rejoicing in the name of Christ. Hear our prayers for faith and courage. We pray for the church, the community of your grace, which you are building up in this world by your word and spirit. For this congregation, for our presbytery, for your church throughout the world, we ask for your mercy and grace. Especially we pray for grace truly to be of one heart and soul. Forgive our sins, correct our errors, and make us to serve you by serving one another. See fit, we pray, to bless us with growth, enable us more faithfully to witness to Christ. Hear our prayers for the church and our missionaries, Ben Westerveld in Quebec, Mark Richline in Uruguay, New City Church in Grand Rapids, and their pastor, Tony Miles, and Wes Reynolds, stated clerk of Presbytery. We pray for the world and for our nation and rulers. Do not let us forget that Christ is Lord. Bring rest from conflict in Syria, Mexico, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Israel, and Palestine, China, Yemen, and the Korean Peninsula. Preserve your church in those countries. Show mercy to us in this land. May there be good policies that stop the rise of violence in our cities and increase the security of our borders. Help those who are still um, recovering from fires in Hawaii for uh, hurricane damage in the southeast flooding on the Atlantic coast uh, over the last couple of days. Bless and guide our leaders, especially we pray for President Biden and our governor, 
for the Supreme Court as it renders its decisions. May we always obey your word and bear witness to the redemption of Christ for your creation. Hear our prayers. We pray for those who are sick, for those who suffer, for those who are discouraged, for those who are struggling. We do give you thanks for the healing, renewal, and protection you have given us this past week. We pray especially thanking you for the birth of Jace Tobias Swanson, uh, son of Rebecca and David Swanson. We thank you for this new life. And now here are our prayers for Luca, Fawn, Eduardo, Frida, Jeff, Tammy and her family, along with our friends Becky, Phil, Dominic, Margaret, and Jane, as well as those we name to you silently. We give you thanks for hearing our prayers, for the ministry of the word made effective by your spirit, and for the preservation of this congregation. Continue to give us your grace. May we be witnesses to your salvation in Jesus Christ here and in every place we live. Bring many more people to Christ and into the family of his church. And now, Almighty Father, ruler of all things in heaven and earth, accept the prayers of your people and strengthen us to do your will in the new life of your spirit through Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now if the ushers would come forward and collect the offering.
and bring it to us that the same, being devoted to your service, may be used for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. And we join together now in uh, praying for uh, God's illumination on our reading. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you that you are a God who cares for his creation, who is involved with his creation, and for uh, we, your creatures, um, we thank you for giving us the, uh, the minds, um, the aptitude, the opportunity to read your word, and we pray now that your spirit would be upon us, that you would enlighten us, that we would understand what we hear, that we would believe what we hear, that we would be edified um, by you in what we hear. We pray these things in Christ's name and to his glory, amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and cast away their cords from us. The Lord holds them in derision. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Our epistle reading this morning comes from First Timothy. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Finally, our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Glad to see you again. Our, our sermon text comes from the, the epistle reading, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you'd like to have that in front of you, it might be helpful. 1 Timothy 1, looking especially at verses 8 through 11. I was talking to someone earlier, we, earlier before the service a bit about Uh, Our background, my wife and I both grew up in liberal Protestant churches or Protestant liberalism. And what I mean by that is uh, the the churches believed that in our modern age, we know better than to believe in the miracles that the Bible talks about and the supernatural elements. Uh, We were taught that was for superstitious people in olden times, but, but in our modern age, we know better than that, but... The morals of the Bible are really good. And so it's good to be good and it's bad to be bad. That was kind of the, the gist of, of the teaching week after week. And, and in God's providence in the, in the liturgy, um, I learned the Ten Commandments. I learned the Apostles' Creed. I learned the Lord's Prayer. That was sort of the closest I came to catechism, was doing those things in, in the liturgy. And, and the Ten Commandments... This kind of reminded me that I wasn't really good, it's, if it's good to be good. And, and later, um, I, after I graduated high school, I got it. I'll try to make this short because it's really a long story. But the short of it is I, I got a job with some people who really believed that, that the Bible was true, the supernatural elements and everything. And I, I was surprised at that and kind of attracted to it and repulsed by it at the same time, if that makes any sense. Uh, But it made me start reading the Bible, and one of the places I started reading was the Sermon on the Mount, where uh, our gospel reading came from. And Jesus would take these laws, and he'd say, what this really means is, and he would delve into the heart attitudes. And I began to realize, wow, I'm... I'm a lot worse than I thought I was. I thought I was a pretty good person, but actually, I'm not that great of a person, according to God. And the more I read, the more convicted I became. Yeah, this is true. And not only that, I I need a Savior. And I realized that Jesus was that Savior, and that was a a big U-turn in my life, kind of like Paul's Damascus Road experience wasn't, wasn't just sudden, though. It was, took a whole summer in my case. Um, then I started going to a little Bible college, and some of my friends introduced me to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that was nearby, and I started worshiping there, and I realized, well, you know, 
I was thinking the New Testament was the most important part of the Bible, but the Old Testament is important too. So I decided I what I really need to do is read the whole Bible. I'll just read it from from beginning to end because I've never done that before. And so I started reading the Bible. And I had been assured, I, I felt sure that my sins had been forgiven through Jesus. But, but the more I read the Bible and the more I read God's laws, the more I thought, wow, I thought I was bad, but I'm even worse than I thought I was. And, and I began to lose that sense of assurance. I began to think, how could I imagine myself to be uh, right with God if I'm, if I'm still this if I still have this much sin in my life, is that even possible to be right with God and have this much sin in my life? And I kept going, and the more I read, the more discouraged I became about myself until I came to Psalm 103, which reminded me that, that it's God's love is the reason he forgives us, and he, and he takes our sins away as far as the east is from the west. That just kind of shone out from the Bible, and it was almost like a new conversion experience. It just reminded me, stop looking at yourself and look at Jesus, because he has accomplished for you what you have failed to accomplish for yourself. Well, the reason I tell that story is to ask this question. Is the law your enemy, or is it your friend? And I was tempted to think the law is my enemy because it just sort of beats me down and discourages me. And Jesus is my friend because he lifts me up and encourages me. But I want us to notice that that's an imbalance. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's an imbalanced understanding. It's sort of a half-truth at best. So if you've got this Bible passage open in front of you, look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11, and notice that verse 8 says, The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then verse 11 says that this lawful use of the law is in accordance with the gospel. So these are the three things we're going to consider this morning. Number one, God's law is good. Number two, God's law has a right use. And number three, when we use God's law rightly, it accords with God's gospel. So number one, God's law is good. Look again at verse eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And this is speaking of what we call the moral law. The moral law. When we look at the when when a godly Israelite looked at the Old Testament, there's, it was just one law. We this not the distinctions that we sometimes make as, as New Testament Christians looking back at it. Uh, it was just the law. But when we look back at it in light of what Jesus has done, we say, well, there, there is a moral aspect to the law. Uh, these are the things that reflect God's character, the things that abide. Uh, there's a ceremonial aspect to the law. These are the teachings about the sacrifices and ceremonies uh, that pointed forward to Jesus that enabled people to experience God's forgiveness in their time. And there are uh, civil, there's a civil aspect to the law. And these, this had to do with God's people living as a theocracy in the promised land. 
uh, under the kings of, of the Old Testament. When we, when we uh, say the law is good, this is speaking of what we call the moral aspect of the law. When verse 9 says this, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. There's no definite article. Our translation puts the definite article as that word, the, uh, the law. But, but that word isn't actually in uh, the, the original Greek. It just says law. We know that law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless. Because it's not talking about the whole mosaic economy with all of its regulations. It's talking about the moral core of those regulations, what we've nicknamed the moral law. So this is reinforced when you look closely at verses 9 and 10. Look, look at verses 9 and 10 and, and think about the Ten Commandments and notice that this is just sort of walking through the Ten Commandments. Verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So it's talking about the moral core of the law, uh, those, those requirements that reflect what God himself is like and what God has created us to be like as, may, as those who are made in his image. Well, how then is God's law good? We know that the law is good. How is it good? Well, in at least two ways. Number one, God's law reflects God's character. It shows us what the righteous God is like when God says, you shall not bear false witness or you shall not lie. Uh, it's because God himself is truth. He is light. There's no darkness in him at all. He, he's always true. There's nothing false within him. It shows what's important to God. Just going through those Ten Commandments, say these are the things that are important to God. It defines what righteousness is. But number two, well, number one, it reflects God's character. Number two, God's law reveals God's design for us. The Bible tells us right at the beginning that he created human beings in his image. Male and female, he made them in his own image. In other words, we're supposed to be little creaturely replicas of God. We're to be like God. When we read earlier uh, the scripture verse from Romans 3, all sin and fall short of God's glory, glory is one of those words for the visible representation of God. We were made in the image and glory of God. And our problem is, since the fall of the human race, we fall short of God's glory. God designed us to be like him, to be accurate replicas of him, miniature but accurate, but we fall short of reflecting that image as we ought. And God's law shows us what we're supposed to be like. It shows us to, how to live most happily and harmoniously with our created purpose. If we are going against what God reveals in his law, it, it, it doesn't just disobey God, it actually harms us. Sin, that's why sin, breaking God's laws, leads to misery. 
because it goes against the way God has designed us to be. Like, for example, if I, if I decide my car is low on oil and I, need, and I need to put oil in it, and I know that the owner's manual says, you know, use this certain kind of oil, but in, in my grocery bag I've got a jar of molasses and it looks pretty much like oil, doesn't it? So I pour that into my engine. Will that be a good thing or a bad thing? I could say, I don't care what the owner's manual says. I'm just going to use this anyway because it makes sense to me. But it doesn't matter whether it makes sense to me or not. My engine is going to seize up. I'll kill my engine because I'm going against the design of the engine. And when we break God's laws, we go against our design. And it does us a lot of damage. I think back to when I was a teenager in the 1960s and there was all this uh, thought about, oh, if we, if we do this and that, that'll be liberating and that'll, that'll lead to happiness, that'll lead to human fulfillment. Uh, but I look back now from this vantage point and I said, boy, that's caused a lot of destruction. And some of the people that most bought that line didn't survive the experience. It, it actually killed them. Uh, they, it's bad for people to do what God has not designed us to do. And so God's law is good, but if it's good, secondly, God's law has a right use, which means it also has a wrong use or wrong uses, but it has a right use. So how are we to use it? God's law is good if, it, if one uses it lawfully. During the Protestant Reformation, there was a, a general agreement as they, as they studied scripture Actually, and this, this went back even before that into medieval theologians spoke this way as well. But they agreed there were three right uses of God's law. By, and I mean his moral law. Uh, by use, they meant the way we're supposed to use God's law. How are we supposed to use God's law? Well, in three basic ways. So what, what are these three basic ways that we're to rightly use God's law? And they agreed, they didn't always put them in the same order, and I, I don't know that there's any theological significance to that, but, but they agreed on these three basic uses. Um, number one, what they called the civil use, which is just for human society to restrain evil. If everybody is uh, cheating one another, murdering one another, raping one another, society will break down, Right? So this is to restrain evil. God's law is like a curb or a restraint. But secondly, they said there's also, they called it a pedagogical use. That is to convict sinners of their guilt and, and point them to Jesus. Send them to Jesus as their only hope. So this is God's law as a mirror. Looking in this mirror and saying, oh, I don't really match up and trying to to fix that or find something, some way to fix it. And number three is what they called a normative use, which is to show believers how to live their lives in a way that's pleasing to God. God's law as a map or a guide for living the Christian life. And actually, those big words aren't that important, are they? God's law is a curb. God's law is a mirror to reflect what we're like and to show us our need of Jesus. 
and God's law as a friendly map or guide for how to live a life of thanksgiving and response to God's grace in Jesus. So when God says in this text, this scripture, uh, that the lawful use of the law is for the lawless, which of these uses do you think he means? Is it the first one, God's law is a curb? Well, for sure that's the case because it's to restrain evil in society. God's law is for the lawless. Yes, it's a curb to restrain evil. Uh, But they also seem to apply to God's law as a mirror uh, to convict sinners of their guilt and to drive them to Jesus. So, for example, a rich young ruler came to Jesus. We read this in the Gospels. And he said, good teacher, what must we do? What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus answered with a question, well, what does, what does the law say? And, and the fellow summarizes the law, and we read that earlier this morning. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly uh, the core of God's law. Love God and love your neighbor. So go and do that, and you'll have eternal life. And the guy says, well, I've done that all my life. And Jesus, now I'm paraphrasing, reading between the lines a little bit, but Jesus, in effect, says, oh, really? Well, let's just go back and and test then. Um, The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So go sell everything you have and then come back and follow me. And the Bible says, the next verse says, then the man went away sad because he had a lot of possessions. See, he flunked right on the first commandment. They didn't even get to commandment 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, or 10. At least the apostle Paul made it the whole way to commandment number 10. <laughs> but, but in this case, and that's in verse, Romans 7, verse 7, the apostle Paul said, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. See, it's that mirror that exposes our need. But not only that, it also seems to apply to that third use of God's law as a guide to show believers how to live lives uh, that are pleasing to God. Because we continue to fall short, don't we? And if we just went our own way, given the the sin that remains in us, uh, we would quickly stray away from a life that is pleasing to God. And so it continues uh, to show us uh, the way of righteousness rather than the way of lawlessness. So first, the law exposes and condemns sin. It causes sinners to flee to Jesus for righteousness. But then after they fled to Jesus for righteousness and forgiveness, it shows redeemed, forgiven sinners how to live a life of learning how to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And the reason why we continue to need God's law is because we have a natural tendency uh, to sin, to lawlessness. And this is why the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, number 115. 
It says, no one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? And then it gives this answer. First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. There are a number of different words in the, in the Bible both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament that are translated sin. And, and each of them has a different shade of meaning. But, but one of the words that's commonly translated sin basically comes from, from archery. It means when an, if a person shoots an arrow and it falls short of the target, that's sin, that falling short. And... And that's what we do by nature. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if we don't even have a target at all, we might not even be aiming in the right direction. Uh, If we're aiming in the right direction, even if we continue to, to fall short, hopefully we get a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. And so it is even for forgiven, redeemed sinners uh, that God's law has a lawful use to, to guide us in our steps. There's a theologian named Richard Mueller, a scholar, who wrote this. Christ appears as the end of the law, both in the sense that the pedagogical use, that is the law as a mirror, leads to Christ as to a goal. The law is a mirror to expose sin and drive us to Christ. And then he continues, and in the sense that the normative use, which is God's law as a friendly guide to show Christians how to live the Christian life, in the sense that the normative use has become a possibility for us only because Christ has fulfilled the law in himself. In other words, both as a mirror that would show us our need of Jesus and and drive us to him, and as a friendly guide or map to show us how to live a life that's pleasing to God, Jesus is central. He's central first as the one who has rescued his people uh, from the law's demands and from the law's curse, from the punishments that the law threatens. And second, Jesus is central as the one who has merited the gift of Holy Spirit-produced obedience. And you, you may or may not recall from... Last week's sermon, we talked about the fact that when the Lord rescues us, he changes our status so that we move from those who are guilty under God's uh, judgment to those who are righteous under God's judgment. But he also changes us uh, so that we now have new desires and new ability uh, to obey God. And God's law is the map that shows us the way. So God's law is good if one uses it lawfully, which brings us to the third point. When we do use God's law lawfully, it harmonizes with God's gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 11 says, it's, it's continuing this whole sentence, 
the law is good if it's used lawfully. Then it speaks of, that has a parenthesis where it goes through that list of sins that basically follow the Ten Commandments. And, but then it concludes the sentence this way, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In accordance with the gospel. The lawful use of God's law accords with, it harmonizes with the gospel. It's not that God's standards point us this way and God's gospel points us that way. The good news of salvation in Jesus uh, points us that way. Uh, But when we rightly use the law, the law and the gospel go hand in hand. They go together. God's law accords with God's gospel. God's law and God's gospel are two different aspects of God's revelation, but they're not enemies. Uh, They are friends and they are allies in Jesus Christ. A fellow named Jerem Bars wrote this. We may be sure that where the law is not deeply taught and loved, there will be little appreciation of Jesus Christ and for his work. And there will be little transformation of life and genuine discipleship. It is only as we see the righteousness that characterizes God and that he desires in us, only as we understand the full requirements of the law, that we will be deeply convicted of sin and see our need of Christ's love. The truth is that we need to delight in the law in our inmost being and to teach this delight to others. Only this love for the law will bring utter dependence on Christ and on his grace for both our justification and our sanctification. That's the end of that quote. Justification means God's legal verdict uh, that not only are all our sins forgiven, but that we are counted to be just as righteous as Jesus is righteous thanks to his good record being counted as ours. And sanctification is God's Christianizing of the Christian, working by the Holy Spirit uh, to work in us what Jesus has worked for us so that we work it out with fear and trembling. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, I'm still, I'm looking at verse 11 here. And the gospel of the glory of the blessed God always needs to be front and center in your spiritual diet. Your spiritual diet needs to be full of Jesus Christ and his grace. So as you seek to obey God's laws and live the Christian life, keep looking to Jesus. In fact, if we, if we don't keep looking to Jesus, God's law will drive us to despair. That was the experience I had as a young Christian when I decided to read the Bible the whole way through. And somehow I, I sort of forgot about uh, the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, because I got so caught up in these laws that they just drove me to despair so that I doubted that I really was a believer until I came to Psalm 103, and it then snapped, snapped the gospel back into front and center in my thinking. We need to keep the gospel front and center in our thinking. So, so you can look at the law of God and And you can scrutinize your life very carefully, ruthlessly even, in light of that holy standard. How do I fall short? But for each look at the law, take 
two looks at Jesus or three looks or four looks or five, however many it takes, but keep looking at Jesus at the same time. So keep looking back at the finished work of Jesus on the cross that has secured uh, your forgiveness and your sanctification and your glorification. Keep looking forward to his coming work when he comes back visibly in power, in glory, in order to complete and perfect your full salvation. And all the while keep looking up uh, to his present ongoing work as your prophet, priest, and king, working by the Holy Spirit through the word to sanctify you, to Christianize you through and through, to train you to follow his law by putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Now, one of my old professors years ago, actually last century, (laughs) put this in a really helpful way. He wrote, this is Dr. Richard Gaffin, he writes, apart from the gospel and outside of Jesus, the law is my enemy and condemns me. Why? Because God is my enemy and condemns me. But with the gospel and in Jesus, united to him by faith, the law is no longer my enemy, but my friend. Why? Because God is no longer my enemy, but my friend. And the moral law reflects his own character. It reflects concerns inherent in his own person. And so it reflects what pleases him. Thus it now becomes my friendly guide for life in fellowship with God. My friendly guide for life in fellowship with God. So did you get that? If God is your enemy, then his law is your enemy and it condemns you. But if God is your friend, then his law is your friend, and it guides you. You can't call God's law your friend until you can call God your friend. So how do you and God become friends? Well, only because of his grace, and the Bible says that he's abounding in grace. He wants uh, to be your friend, and only by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the only mediator between God and man. And he's the perfect mediator between God and man. And only through faith, by lifting up the empty hands to receive the free gift that God offers in Jesus Christ. And when that's your experience, then the law is your friend. It's friendly to you. Why? Because of Jesus' mediation and merits, He's fulfilled all the demands of God's law. He's satisfied the full curse of God's law. He's paid it all. He makes us to be friends of God, and he transforms and energizes us by his Holy Spirit. He makes us to be like God, which is why the law is friendly to the believer. There was a fellow who was a habitual thief, really good at it. It's kind of the kind of person that maybe a movie would be uh, made out of. But he was converted. He came to trust Jesus as his Savior, and his life was transformed. And, and he, he experienced real changes, but the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, you shall not steal, that kept driving him to despair because he had to keep fighting against the temptation to steal. 
He, he was so good at it, and it was almost second nature to him. And so he had a, a daily struggle against that temptation. And every time he heard that, you shall not steal, it discouraged him. But then one day he heard it different. I think it was the Holy Spirit's work. But, but when he heard it this time, it struck him that now that I'm a new creature in Christ, now that I'm forgiven and, and born again and have uh, new desires and new strength, it's not just a restriction saying you may not do this. It's also a promise because God has saved you and is sanctifying you, is Christianizing you, thou shalt not steal. It's not just a condemnation, but it's a promise. This is the new you that God is making. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Let's join our hearts and voices standing and Confessing our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed as they're found in the bulletin. People of God, in whom do you trust? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. As you stand, let's respond to God's word by singing this prayer. Lead me, Lord, lead me in thy righteousness. Hymn 727.
seated. The Lord Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. This time we're going to have a diaconal offering. That means an offering for the ministry of mercy. The ushers, please. Father and our God, thank you for your gift, your free gift of full and free salvation in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you give so generously. And in response, we wish to give generously to others. And so we pray that you would take these gifts and bless them and use them, consecrate them uh, to serving those who are in need. For Jesus' sake, amen. Since I already mentioned that I'm from the last century, there was a popular song called Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. That actually, that's just remembering those three words is a, is a good way of thinking of the Lord's Supper and baptism. What we call the sacraments uh, from the Latin, from the Latin word, we get these long multi-syllable words uh, often from Latin or Greek or Hebrew, but in any case, that word just simply means mystery. Uh, but, but the easy way to remember them is that God tells his truth through the reading and the preaching of the word, but then he signs and seals it and delivers it through baptism and the Lord's Supper by his Holy Spirit and through faith. When we receive uh, these Signs and seals through faith. So a sign means that he uses this to symbolize the gospel. As surely as the bread is broken and given to you, so surely uh, Jesus gave his body to be broken, put to death in your place, and given to you for your salvation. As surely as the cup is given, so the blood of Jesus was poured out and given to you. And it's not just a pantomime that we do in front of you that you watch, is it? Not just the pastor and not just the pastor and the elders, uh, but the bread is offered to you for you to take and the, and the cup is offered to you for you to take. And that's, that's a sign and a seal that God doesn't just tell you about Jesus, or he doesn't just do it for... He didn't, Jesus didn't just do what he did for us to know about, 
uh, but it's for each of us to personally appropriate for ourselves. To receive Jesus just as you receive the bread, to personally receive him. Uh, to personally receive him as you receive uh, the cup. And, and so the Lord reinforces this it's because he loves us so much. And he knows that we're weak, we're prone to doubts, we're prone to misunderstanding. That he wants us to get it. And so he reinforces uh, what he proclaims uh, through the preaching and through the reading of God's word with visible, tangible, physical uh, signs and seals. And the amazing thing, and this is really, uh, this is really the miracle, is that when we receive it by faith, really trusting the Lord in our hearts and trusting uh, what he's done for us and what he is doing for us, that he actually delivers himself to us. We, he delivers the God, the God delivers Jesus and all the blessings that he has to you, all the benefits of salvation. So that just as when you hear the gospel and you receive it in faith, God delivers Jesus to you. So when you see the gospel and touch the gospel and taste the gospel in the Lord's Supper, God delivers it to you. Which is why those who are invited, all of are all who are invited who are resting in Jesus as their Savior and following him in faith because he's the only way unto the Father. Let's prepare to come to the table by our great thanksgiving. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Almighty God, fount of every blessing, we thank and praise you that we live in this beautiful world that you've created and that you are upholding and sustaining by your power. Everything that happens, happens at, in response to your word of power. And we thank you for making us in such a way that we can know you, that we can love you, that we can trust you, that we can serve you, that we can be your friend. And we thank you for loving the world, so loving the world that you gave your only begotten Son, so that whoever trusts in him may not die, uh, but have everlasting life. Thank you that Jesus uh, added to himself a human nature, that this eternal Son of God uh, took on flesh and lived a perfect life on earth in order to do for us all the duty that we owe you. And that he died an atoning death in order to pay for us all the debt that we owe you. And that he rose again triumphant over sin and death so that we serve a living Savior. That he ascended to his royal throne at your right hand. And that now he's always present by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on all flesh. Uh, that he is working in us what he worked for us and so that we might work it out with fear and trembling. Thank you that we can live in the confident hope that your kingdom will come when Jesus returns in power and glory, but in the meantime that you are with us in life, in death, in beyond death. Therefore, with all the company of heaven, with all your people of all times and all places, we proclaim your greatness, we praise you. Holy Lord God, by what we do here at your table, we remember what Jesus has done in order to save us. 
Uh, we rely on what the Holy Spirit is doing to bring Christ's work to bear on us. We recommit ourselves to you and to all your redeemed children. And we prepare ourselves for our Lord's return in power and in glory. To that end, please grant that by your Holy Spirit and through faith, we may commune in the body of Christ by means of your bread and the blood of Christ by means of the wine. As we eat and drink at our Lord's command, please strengthen our vital connection with Jesus Christ and with one another as one body in him. Please strengthen us to serve you in the world and to you, one holy and eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give praise and glory both now and forever. Amen. I'd like the elders to... On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. bread that we break is a participation in the body of Christ. The 
cup of blessing that we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ. Let's rejoice in our Lord and his salvation singing hymn 529, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. sends us out to serve, and he sends us out with his blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
Please be seated. Thank you again. We're grateful for Larry and his wife uh, coming over and and uh, serving us with the preaching of God's word. We're grateful for that. Um, today we will have we will not have Christian education classes. Um, a little bit of a gap in our in our curriculum. So the the new curriculum starts on. Uh, the 8th, two weeks from today. Next week would be our fellowship dinner and then resuming Christian Ed uh, the week following. Um, As you may or may not know, um, Rebecca Wilson Swanson delivered a baby boy this week. Jace Tobias Swanson, so I'm sure... Jeff and Heidi are reveling in that. Thursday, the Thursday Bible study is set to resume on the 28th, which is this week, right? Yeah. This Thursday night. The theme is that the topic is the development of the Christian canon, the scriptures. Is there anything else? Oh, remember, remember the, we have a number of conferences coming up. Carl Truman speaking at the University Reformed in East Lansing on the 13th and 14th. I believe that same week, Oakland Hills is hosting a conference on worship. Um, so a number of things going on as far as uh, those kind of uh, conferences go. Anything else? I'm stunned. Bless you. Have some time of fellowship. As Chaz mentioned last week, you have the benefit of not being harassed by me over Christian education classes. So. <laughs>